Assalamualaikum. Today we're having a conversation with Dr. Banafshe Madhinejad. Dr. Madhinejad is an anti-racism and gender educator and equity strategist. She's a workshop designer and facilitator for governments, businesses, and non-profit organizations. She also has founded the Sisters in Leadership Training, a women-centered consulting firm specializing in retaining women and women of color. And of course, she's the founder of I Am, an anti-racist organization dedicated to interconnecting Arabs, Muslims, and Middle Easterners. She has a bachelor's in theoretical and mathematical physics, two masters, and a PhD from UT Austin in comparative literature. She was previously a professor focusing on feminist philosophy and critical race theory at Middlebury College and Southwestern University. We'll be talking to her about her life experiences, coding for NASA, switching fields, leaving academia, and then of course her podcasts called The Defining Moment and The Red Peace Machine. Last but not least, we'll be talking about her baby, which is the organization I am interconnecting Arabs, Muslims, and Middle Easterners. But before we begin, I must urge you please share this podcast with friends and family. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and please please leave a review for the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Please support a diversity of voices in the podcasting world by liking, subscribing, and reviewing and or sharing the podcast. Now let's begin. Assalamu alaikum banafshe. Alaikum salam. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So I I just want to jump right in cuz there's so much I want to talk to you about. First I want to talk just about you coming to the US. I remember when I first came to the US and we had an amazing international department but they kept talking about the word culture shock and <laughs> I always felt like this term didn't capture my experience. What was immigrating from uh, Iran to USA like for you as a young adult? Yeah, I don't mean to be dramatic here but it was lonely. It was very very lonely and i did some i started hanging out with some people that i normally would not have <laughs> just because yeah it was just very lonely so this is the loneliness is what i remember the most not necessarily the culture shock i think it was i wasn't too much of a shock from the loneliness yes yes <laughs> yeah that's actually yeah that that was actually so my experience too yeah I know you went on to write code for NASA. I mean that's just amazing. I mean, I can't I mean my first job was I don't know data entry or something. What was it like to be part of history in that way? I you know to be honest with you as I look back, it was very exciting. I felt really good about myself. I thought there was no end to the possibilities all of that right I basically started working for NASA my 6th year in the United States like I I was one of those uh, people it took me 6 years to get my degree because I you know I was still an international student and sometimes I had to work like 3 jobs in one semester and then and then go to school the second semester and and by the way statute of limitations is over so two of those jobs were illegal and all of that <laughs> Yes, it's pretty crazy. So, and by the way, they just I mean, this is the mid 90s and nobody really cared about getting out of status, right? Yeah. You just I go to the international office and they'd be like, "Oh, you got out of status." So, you just need to go to INS, which is what it was called back then, and get back into status. I was like, "Okay, I will." And I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was so relaxed. But yeah, working at NASA was really exhilarating in the beginning. And by the way, 
when I wanted to come to the U.S., I, which I've heard this story from a lot of other immigrants from the Am world, Arab Muslim Middle Eastern world, especially from a lot of South Asian sisters and brothers, that when I wanted to come, and my conversation was with my father. So father's like, well, what do you want to study when you go? And I said, well, I want to do political philosophy. And he was like, well, then you're not going. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, well, what do you want me to study? He's like, well, you know what I want you to study. I want you to become a doctor. <laughs> so the next best thing for me was math and physics, which is what I had always had a passion for and I like, but not a passion enough to actually do it for the rest of my life. I was just good at it. So being at NASA kind of felt exhilarating because it was good for my ego and it felt good. And it was exciting. I'd always been fascinated fascinated with space. But at the end of the day, it left a big hole because it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I remember when I went for my job interview, it was one of those magical moments where all the stars align. And I went to a job fair and I ran into this guy who was also a physics graduate. And he looked at my one page, very sparse resume. And he was like, oh my God, you studied physics. I was like, yeah. And, you know, he's sizing me up and down. I'm not bad to look at. So that had probably something to do with it, too. And then he's like, well, can you code? I was like, how hard can it be? Like, that was my answer. And he loved that. I was like, it's a language. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, okay. <laughs> so then, I mean, if it was like so amazing in at NASA and like having this amazing opportunities, why make the switch from an undergrad in physics to eventually, I mean, you have two masters along the way as well, but eventually a PhD in uh, comparative literature? Oh my goodness. That's such a long story. So I started, again, this wasn't very fulfilling. So I started taking film theory classes because I, I also made some doc, short documentary films. So I, I was really into it in, in the late 90s. I was in my 20s and I was really, really into it. And I was traveling to Iran. Uh, my father was sick at that time, traveling to Iran sometimes three, four times a year. Uh, one time I went for a week. It was ridiculous. But in that process, I started filming in Iran. And mind you, I am still at this point and until just about 10 years ago when I had my first child in the process of transitioning into actually mind and body being in the U.S. as opposed to straddling or in those days fully still being in Iran, <laughs> mm -hmm. mind and body, which is such a bad way to be and live. So confusing. At any rate, I started taking courses, was living in Houston at that time, started taking courses at Rice in Houston. And at that time, Hamid Nafisi, the film theorist, very famous Iranian film theorist who now teaches at Northwestern was still at Rice. And he basically, I learned how to write with him. I started reading theory, a post-colonial theory. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? I need to be doing this. And I realized I'm a good writer. I have a lot to say. I'm, I found a home. I found my heart started kind of expanding. And I started sort of seeing my future finally, because I wasn't before then. And I applied to grad schools, got into UT, none of the doctoral programs, because I just had no background, right? But I of course, went back to political philosophy, which is what I had always wanted to do. And I eventually got into the 
political science department. And I, I said, okay, I'm just going to go to the theory route. Long story short, I basically got thrown out of that department. My goal was to move over to philosophy. Bob Solomon at that time was still in at UT philosophy department and he was doing continental philosophy. He's the pretty much the only person there, but like world renowned. And I loved him and him and I had talked about working together and me transitioning over there. And, and another kind of crazy thing, the summer I was supposed to transition over for fall into philosophy from political science. And that summer he passed away in Paris. So I stayed in political science. And I remember the day that I realized I didn't belong in poli I mean, I had realized it all along, but I went to my sort of continental philosophy, political philosophy person in the political science department. And he said, okay, well, what do you want you to write your proposal? And I said, Islamic philosophy. And he cocks his head and he says, is there such a thing? Oh my God. So I walked over to the comparative literature department and I already knew that theory people who mostly women of color or people of color in general who don't have a place in philosophy, which is such a real thing, go there. So I was like, okay, I'm going there. So within two weeks I had transferred. Wow. After, after three years in poli sci, I transferred over after having tested out and done all my stuff. And I was like, I just can't take this anymore. I mean, the level of slight and microaggression and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Let's not get into that. But, and of course, comparative literature was the place I needed to be. And within two years, I was done, dissertation, everything out of there. That's, yeah, I mean, I completely empathize with the story just because I'm also in the discipline of philosophy. And I know now philosophy is a whole lot better. We have feminist philosophy of critical race theory, which is considered part and parcel of philosophy. But I remember up until very recently, it was, is this even philosophy? What are you writing? How is this philosophical? And yeah, I mean, there was somebody at where I did my grad school at Binghamton. I don't know if you've heard of Maria Lagones, but she was, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. She was not in the philosophy department. She was in the comparative literature department. And I always found that so odd, but it's very difficult for philosophy to make place for women of color and the kind of work that we do. So I completely do empathize with with your journey in that sense. I also wanted to ask about one of your masters uh, where your focus was on Sufism. And just by being a Muslim, I know that there are lots of misconceptions about Sufism within the Muslim community that are not Sufi. What are some of the things that you have found doing your research on this? I think the thing that stands out the most for me was that pre-1700s, the Islamic world, the traditions, the way Islam was practiced on the ground among the people was Sufism. That was who we were. That's our social infrastructure. That was how we took care of each other. That's where we congregated in the tekiya, in the khanaqah, in the lodges, whatever you want to call them. You know, the sense of the divine wrapped up in mystery and the room that was allowed for not just ambivalence, but like questioning and not having the answers and the sense of letting the day unfold fold, letting in mystery, in what I guess the Western world would call magic, but it's really the unknowing of the divine will, like just letting things unfold 
right? Instead of trying to, in very actually white supremacist manner, defining everything, controlling everything, that is what appealed to me. And that came through to me because of the poetry, right? Because I grew up with the Sufi poetry, which is what Iranian kids just do because they teach us this to us in school, unbeknownst to, you know, they, I don't know if they're still doing that in Iranian schools, but I remember learning something in Ta'limat dini or like religion classes or Quran classes and then going to my literature class and I'm like, holy crap, this, this is where God sits. This is what I want. I don't want the other stuff. The other stuff feels like rote memorization and there's no sweetness to it. There's no life to it. There's no living in it. There's no, no message for me in that. I love that description. Why did you end up leaving academia? I know you're teaching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew this was coming. <laughs> I mean, um, it is it is something we all grapple with. Like sometimes we were having a tough time and we're like, oh, my God, this, uh, you know, you hate the bureaucracy, you hate the toxicity, the racism and so on and so forth. What was your core reason to leave uh, academia? Yeah, Sabajan, it's never just one thing, right? It's always so many things that makes us decide to take another path. You know what? It was not giving me life. It was taking life away from me. Really, that's I now I get to do my writing. I'm, I'm starting a new research project this summer and I get to work with people I love, other academics. It's, it's a project that we're starting, inshallah, in June. It's about the connections between taking on white supremacist, white organizational, cultural sort of ways of being for Am folks, Arab Muslims and Middle Easterners who or who immigrated here or first generation, second generation, whatever, and this concept of assimilation. And we're, we're trying to sort of figure out how that all works, like mimicry and all the all the concepts that we, especially in theory, kind of touch on. We're going to have storytelling sessions where people get to tell their stories in groups. And we're focusing this round on just immigrants and then children of immigrants. And we're dividing these storytelling events into six groups. We're focusing on South Asians, Arabs, and Iranians. And each grouping of folks will be divided into immigrants and their youth and their children, basically. And we want to see if there's a going back to physics, quantum jump with understanding or any divergence that happens in ways of thinking about the world, ways of thinking about self in the world. And that's, so, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a beautiful project. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit more about I am, uh, who are the am, and how did you get involved in this in the first place? Yeah. So, I remember I was, I went through menopause early. And that summer that I went through menopause, I was in Morocco. I was teaching abroad. I had, it's a, it's magic if you have two small children and you get a whole month to yourself sequestering in a an apartment in the old city, old part of the city, uh, in, in some city in Morocco. And I remember I would go teach in the mornings and just come into this apartment and just be like after years and years of, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember all I did, Saba was right. 
I would just get home, I would start writing, and it occurred to me that I want to create an organization. I want to do research my way. I want to, unlike what we do in academia, I want to work with other people. I want to take my time. I don't want people, I don't want the toxic pressure of what you're doing is not philosophy, what the critique of what you're doing is not philosophy, you don't even have a philosophy degree, You, what you're writing is not philosophy, why do we have to care about this, all those blah, 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 blah. And you can't work with these people, you can't work with that person who writes that, whose name goes on. And also, I wanted to surround myself with people that were not the folks I was working with. And I'm just not talking about my department people, I'm talking about that whole culture. Right. So, yeah, I remember sending an email 10, 15 days into my sequestering and inviting folks that I was just, because I've been organizing since uh, 2009 around different issues. And I had been stationed in Austin. It's the capital. Texas is a very politically backward state. So I had a network of people especially Muslims, that I had been working with for a while. And I just sent out my email. And this is 2018. So it's two years after Trump has already been elected. And I was like, you know what? And Trump getting elected had a lot to do with this. I'm not wasting any more time. I'm When I come back, I'm setting up an organization. And are you on board? And all these friends I reached out to were like, Oh my God, yes. And yeah, and what set us apart from other Muslim organizations was that I, I had reached out not just to Muslim comrades, but also to my Armenian comrades, my Assyrian comrades, my Coptic comrades, my mixed race Jewish comrade, mixed religion, mixed race Jewish comrades, like just all over the place. And I was like, you know what? We ha used to have an Islamicate culture. We still do. There is a reason why I am drawn to you, my Jewish sister, than some white woman that I see eye to eye with. Anyway, we have sisterhood, but there's something else going on. Why are we not banking on this? Because we don't have a people in the United States. I don't have a people. There's black folks. They got each other. They're doing amazing things. They're leading this country. We got Latinx folks. They got each other. So we are a peopleless people in the United States. We don't have a category. I, for the love of God, am categorized as white. Are you kidding me? I mean, True. nothing could be more comical than this in some way, which is very interesting because this is how they conquer. I mean, in my eyes, whether it was intentional or not, in the end, it is going to conquer and divide us. Because right now, especially in Texas, we have this concept of Hispanic and then that is bifurcated into non-white and white. And so the ranks of white folks are dwindling. And then this is how we get tacked on, right? Becoming white is a reality. Wow. And then this is a conquer and divide. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. The intention behind it does not matter the result is divide and conquer. Yeah. So I am, by the way, is interconnecting Arabs, Muslims, and Middle Easterners and South Asians are frontline because South Asians are the largest Muslim population in the United States. And the name was, we spent so many months trying to figure out if 
the category am is, you know, how to kind of go about coming up with this category. And we thought it worked, even though it was not in any way satisfying, because it focuses on three different things. It focuses on Arab, Muslim, Middle Eastern, focuses on region, focuses on race, ethnicity, and also on religion. And so when someone says Muslim, then South Asian or Black Muslims fall into that. When we say Arab, then Christian Arabs or Jewish Arabs, those are that's a category that's covered under the term Arab, even though Arab is an ethnicity. And then Middle East is sort of the region. So we thought it was kind of the biggest umbrella that we could come up with. And it was a term that was being used by the likes of Mustafa Bayoumi. So like it was an academic term at the same time. So but it is in no way satisfying. Another thing that we really focus on are folks who belong to this, the, you know, in some way related to the Islamic world living in the United States, but are not captured otherwise. In other words, atheist, agnostic, searching, non-practicing, unmasked, you know, Sufi, you you mentioned Sufi and how that seems like a, an alien concept now. Druze, again, Christians, Jews, all these folks who are very much marginalized, not just in the Muslim diaspora, but by the non-Muslims looking in, looking from the outside, right? Yeah, so we're very much focused on the on being as inclusive as possible when we think of interconnecting folks. I, uh, I like that umbrella term. It's yeah, it covers it covers a lot of ground, but it's still specific enough. We do focus on uh, the diaspora that comes from Muslim majority countries, but in those Muslim majority countries, there are minorities, and it is. It's those minorities that we're thinking about. We are thinking about the Hindu minorities in Indonesia. We're thinking about the Hindu minorities in Pakistan, for instance. We're thinking about the Hindu, sorry, the Assyrian, the Jewish minorities in Iran, for instance. So again, the boundaries are very fuzzy, but that's how boundaries work. Right. And this is very much the case when we think of the Latinx folk, right? I mean, if we're talking about becoming a people, then there will always be fuzzy boundaries. Right. Yeah. And, and it should be. It should be that way. So I am is an anti-racist organization, but we are focused on house cleaning in the sense that we are amongst ourselves, Arab Muslims and Middle Easterners. We've taken on a lot of internalized racism. We believe in the superiority of whiteness. <laughs> and because of that, we sort of worship white skin um, and all the things that go with it. Right. Uh, certain types of speaking, thinking, certain job types, all of that and and we try really hard to assimilate to that way of being and so this is forgetting all our, our centuries of rich culture that we bring here and so one of the things we're trying to do is kind of put all of that together and remember what we came here with and how to incorporate that how to become a people with that in mind. So I wanted to ask about the podcast that mm -hmm. you're also a part of. You know, what's the podcast name? What do you guys cover? Any story nuggets that you have from the podcasting world? So the podcast is called The Defining Moment, and it's a bit pretentious, but, <laughs> but basically I just, we just thought that it was, is a moment where we want to start 
defining who we are and want to do it in a very conscious and intentional way. And we actually now have two podcasts. One is the thematic one where we, which is TDM, which is the defining moment. And, you know, the things, and the let me just say, kind of bird's eye view. And the other one is we do a weekly news digest. And that's a collaboration between different organizations. And it's just that three of us, there's a, it's a five person podcast with five co-hosts and three of us are from I am. So, um, and we just basically go through what's happened in the week and we kind of connect it to historical sort of events in the past and do a political sort of philosophical analysis. There's a lot of critical race theory in it. There's a lot of gender sort of And what, and what is this uh, podcast called? That is called Red Peace Machine or RPM. Oh, I got to look that up. I mean, yeah. I knew about TDM, but okay. And you said Red Peace Machine. Red Peace Machine. Yes. Okay. Yes. We'll definitely check it out. Okay. Yeah. So going back to TDM, what we do there is one of our, the very first series that we had was a seven episode series on race and assimilation. And we basically sort of talked about certain terms, borrowing a lot from the People's Institute and for survival and beyond, but let me just, yeah. And the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond is quite possibly the oldest training troop for anti-racist work. I believe they do the most hardcore work out there. They've been around for 40 years. So we kind of took their language and made it ours because even in the People's Institute trainings, which I'm a, a resource trainer for, they're most of the times, unless we, if, if there is an Arab Muslim or Middle Eastern, unless they are black or South Asian, they don't fall into any categories. They're just, and the expectation is for us to, for Iranians, for Arabs, for light colored, you know, if you don't identify as black or South Asian, that you have to just, or Asian, you just have to go ahead and call yourself white. And that's really triggering and sometimes even offensive and a big turnoff for people who go there to kind of find themselves, find their own place in this tapestry. Yeah. So, yeah. I have a friend who's from Colombia. He could pass her white. And when he first came to the U.S., he was filling out some form. They wanted to pick his race. And he said, what race should I pick? And the lady didn't look up at him. She was just like, where are you from? Because it was the international office. He's in Colombia. And she's like, pick Hispanic. He's like, I'm not Hispanic, though. So she then looks up at him and she's like, pick white. And he's like, I'll pick Hispanic. <laughs> that kind of reminded me. Of I wanted to ask about what's been happening for the past couple of years, especially since the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, is that what I've at least noticed is that there's been a, a corporatization of anti-racist work and it's become like so bureaucratic with like titles. All of a sudden, a lot of white folks have pivoted into becoming experts on, I put experts here in quotes, in air quotes, becoming experts in anti-race work. And I wanted to ask, how do we balance, how do we balance incorporating social justice in a meaningful way, part of academia, as part of nonprofit organizations, as part of corporations. And I ask this because, you know, you, you do give trainings, like, how do you do it in a meaningful way and not become, let it become this bureaucracy that it, I sometimes think it's becoming? Thank you for that question. It's such an important question. I think debriefs 
is the key to the whole thing. I do see a lot of organizations asking for, I had an organization ask me to conduct a one hour training. I was like, nope, pass. Um, <laughs> one hour. Hey, let's solve racism. Yeah, no. Wow. I've had people negotiate with me because I'm like, you know, this is a, well, it's kind of been difficult uh, with the pandemic, but let's just talk pre-pandemic. I would be like, okay, this is a two-day thing and it's going to be a Saturday and a Sunday. We have to be present with each other. We have to, this is not voice of God. I'm going to tell you this happened and this is this and pay attention to this and this is the name of this and and then give you some worksheet to do a silly exercise we are here to start a transformation and the transformation happens only if we can tell our stories and to tell stories we need to take our time and we need to tell these stories several times and start and halt and start and go again and we need to create an environment that does not have a sense of urgency, as in, what a, what the hell am I doing here? I need to be somewhere else. I got so much work left. I blah, 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 none of that. So in order for that to happen, we need to be in a place that food is served. We get to commune. We need to, we get to sit with each other. We need, we get plenty of time to just chit chat and get to know each other so the whole communal aspect has to be elevated because we're doing this work together it has to be a really diverse space so don't send me all your white people yeah just and don't send me all your leadership <laughs> yes. but at, even after those two days I need to keep coming back and I'm going to need to sit with your different groups I need to sit with the people of color separately I need to, and I don't go alone, I need to look at your, because we're a team of collaborators, and if this is a place that does not have black folks, maybe, and no, still, it's not okay. I still, I haven't done this, like not go with a black sister into a space, I've not done that yet. But I am silent when a black person in our group that we are training speaks and my sister talks to that experience when white folks are speaking i have a white there's a white trainer amongst us that speaks to them most of the times and this is to a lot of the times it's to protect uh, people from getting re-triggered or not feeling heard right because so much of this is about listening and being heard again taking our time to be so to your question of corporatization, yes. You know, you and I know what they want is a classroom setting where somebody goes, gets out their slide deck and keeps clicking until it's over. And everybody's like looking at their text, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's not, that's, that is happening. Yes. Yeah. And which is precisely why no real change happens. If that's the kind of, if that's the clicker presentation is what you're going to get. No change is going to happen because you just log the hours and you forget about it and you move on. And then um, you check your box. Yeah, we did it. We did, we it. did it. Yeah. Did it. Well, you know, I mean, the fact that you gave, give these trainings, what are some of the key things that have, that surprised folks that you give the training to or have surprised you or any stories of like resistance from people where they resist to your message or 
something, anything surprising that you found in your experiences? Yeah, I think it resistance. There's a lot of resistance. Most of the resistance is from white folks. And it's okay. I It took me a while to learn that that resistance is okay. I once had this guy who had taken the training seven years prior to showing up again and was taking it again. And then I had a conversation with him after he took it the second time and still didn't get it. Still didn't I get it. I thought you were going to tell me something uplifting. Like, he no, was like, oh, well, no, it is uplifting, me. though. It is uplifting. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is we do the best we can. Yeah. We do the best we can and we leave the rest. Yeah. And I remember him and I having a conversation and he was saying he had not, he said, I, I'm really interested in having a conversation with you. And he's very vague about what he wanted to talk about. We sit down and he's like, I'm not kidding with you. He tells me, I'm trying to figure out. So he was a nonprofit person. And in that particular training, there was a major focus on we have to hear from the community. We have to go to the community. And there was a discussion about black communities. You have to go into the black community, hear from what they need. You can't prescribe. You have to figure out what they need. He had come to me to figure out what the black community needs. And you know what I did? I was like, yeah. And you know, I didn't attack him. I just said, so you, you can come to me to figure out where to go to, where all the different sources you, you can come to me as for me to give you where all the different, perhaps all the different types of folks you need to go talk to, to figure out what the Iranian community needs. And that's where I left it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been so insightful in terms of all the information, but also you yourself are doing such inspirational work. I do hope that a lot of people take solace from the fact that do what you're passionate about, do what makes a difference in your life and makes a difference in people around you. <laughs> I think you are doing really valuable work in that sense. And yeah, I can't wait to, to see what happens next, especially in your, in your new project that's happening in June with all the stories. Definitely going to be tuning into the other podcast as well. So thank you so much, Benefshe. I really, really thank, appreciate this. Thank you, Sabajan. It was such a, it was, it was wonderful to just talk to you and get to know you too. Yeah. Thank okay. you for having me. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. <laughs>